0: Thank you, choir, orchestra, Caroline, Natalie. One of the great blessings of my life is seated right out here. Charles Jackson is a brother in the Lord. I love him. Thank God for him. And Robin and uh, Candace. Not sure about Roderick We're waiting on that. When, uh, when Little Rod was Born, Candace called me and she said, well, you have a new grandchild?" And uh, so I thank God for them. What a what a blessing they are to me! And thank you for coming. I'm going to extend my sermon about another thirty, forty minutes, so you'll feel comfortable today. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to feel like that you just got a sermonette. I'll do the best I can. You're always telling me about the. The black tradition, well, we're going to do the white tradition today, and it's going to be shorter than what you're used to, <laughs> and I better not hear any amens on that. Well, we're going to continue today our, our series in the Sermon on the Mount. There are a lot of people who would come to the Sermon on the Mount and determine that it is totally impractical. As one looks at the sermon, it just seems to be impractical that when I am persecuted, I'm supposed to rejoice. To be honest with you, that is not my first inclination. When I am persecuted, my inclination is not to rejoice. When someone slaps me on one cheek, turn the other. When someone takes my coat, give them my shirt. Someone has said that either these words are not Christ or we are not Christians. We're going to look at the passage today where Jesus deals with loving your enemy. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. We will pick up where we left off last time. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven... For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now as we have looked at the sermon, I have shared with you that what normally happens in these texts is that Moses has said something, the Pharisees misinterpreted what Moses said and Jesus then corrects it. So with that in mind, there is not a lot of difference today. We see the error of the Pharisees in verse number 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we are familiar with that part that says, Love your neighbor. But where did hate your enemy come from? Did Moses say that? Is that a part of the Old Testament law that we love our neighbor but we hate our enemy? No, that came from the Pharisees, that was the Pharisees' interpretation. And I believe the reason they misinterpreted that is because their definition of neighbor was faulty. They had an exclusive definition as to who is my neighbor. For instance, they excluded the Gentiles. The Gentiles certainly are not to be considered as a neighbor. They also excluded the publicans, they said that they were to be fuel for the fires of hell. They excluded the Samaritans. In fact, it's interesting to me because of their commitment. When they were traveling, they would come up to the land of Samaria. And even though it was a shorter route, rather than go in Samaria to go to their destination, they would detour around Samaria so as not to set foot on that unholy sod. So, when they were talking about neighbor, they said, Well, it doesn't include the Gentiles, doesn't include the Samaritans, doesn't include the publicans. And they concluded that a neighbor then is another Jew. In fact, Thayer wrote, A neighbor was a member of the Hebrew race and commonwealth. So, when they are talking about a neighbor, they are only talking about someone like them. We have that tendency also, do we not? Who is my neighbor? Well, if I am a USC Gamecock, certainly my neighbor is not a Clemson Tiger. We can't be neighbors. If I am a Baptist, those people across the street are not my neighbors. So we, we also sometimes, by practice at least, understand being a neighbor in exclusive terms In fact, it is someone like me. Now because their definition was in error, their interpretation was wrong. Now I will give them credit. There are some scriptures that seem to teach what they believed. We are to love our neighbor, another Jew, but we hate our enemies. There are some scriptures that seem to teach that. For instance, in Deuteronomy 20 verse 17... You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord has commanded you. 1 Samuel 15, verse number 18, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Psalm 69, verse 23. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. May they be blotted out of the book of life. So how do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile those verses of Scripture? They were judicial in nature, never directed to an individual. You see, the Bible tells us clearly That God desires to extend mercy. Exodus 33, verse 11 I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is the desire of God. I've been thinking about that as I sat up here this morning. Aren't you glad that God is merciful? Ladies and gentlemen, none of, it, none of us deserves it. But God is merciful. That's his heart. When we're talking about God, I, I, oh, I know that there are people who think that God gets up every morning trying to figure out how to make my life miserable. But God is merciful. As I read the Bible, I see his mercy. As I reflect on life, I see his mercy God desires mercy, but God is also holy, and His holiness demands justice. Exodus 34, 7 says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So then, how does one reconcile mercy and justice? Mercy means that I don't get what I deserve, so how does God do that? He desires mercy he wants to extend mercy to us but the bible says that he is holy and because he is holy his holiness demands justice so how then is that reconciled i believe it's found in 1 john chapter 4 verse 10 and this is love not that we love god but that he loved us and sent his son To be the propitiation for our sins. What happened? God desires to extend mercy. He is holy. His holiness demands justice. And the Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So when Jesus went to the cross, the scripture says that all of my sin and all of your sin was placed on him. And he paid for our sin. You remember the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus paid the price for my sin. He paid the price for your sin that God might extend to us his mercy. Vines wrote, by the giving up of his sinless life sacrificially, Christ annuls the power of sin to separate between God and the believer. So how do you reconcile the mercy of God and the justice of God? It is the cross. It is when Jesus died on the cross that he became the propitiation for our sins and satisfied the holiness of God so that he could extend to us his mercy. We see the error of the Pharisees. love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then we see the correction of Jesus in verse number 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Pharisees emphasized hate. I guess you could say that they were haters. And Jesus emphasized love. Now, he teaches us about love, first of all, by responding to the negative. And we don't like that. These are, this is an area where it's difficult for us. We learn about love from the negative. For instance, he says, when we are insulted, we are not to retaliate. Verse number 39, I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I, I said last week when we looked at that passage of Scripture that for someone to be slapped on the right cheek by a right-handed man has to be backhanded. And that was an insult. And the rabbi said that a backhand was twice as offensive as being slapped with the flat of the hand. So we're dealing with an insult. He's talking about when people insult you. That's another area that is a little difficult for us, is it not? When someone insults you, especially as a Southerner. Because we take very seriously honor. Don't insult my honor. Right? I mean, that is, a, that is common to a Southerner. Don't insult my honor. In fact, some of you probably have read some of Malcolm Gladwell's books. There was one that I, I, I read, and I've read several of them. But one I read, he had set up this experiment there was a hallway and he wanted to see the different reaction of a northerner and a southerner. And so he had someone down at this end and then there would be a a large burly looking guy, threatening looking guy who was going to walk down that hallway. He would put the northerner out there and he was to walk down the hallway and he would walk down the hallway. But when the other guy was coming, at a safe distance, he would move over and they would walk on by. He put the southerner in there and the southerner, when he would walk down the hall, came within one foot of the other guy. Don't test my honor. See, Now that is an area when someone insults us, it is difficult for us not to retaliate and yet that is what the Lord is teaching us with this. When we are insulted, We are not to retaliate. So he's teaching us about love from the negative. He said, when we are sued, we are to give. Verse number 40, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Now Jesus did not mention if this suit were justified or unjustified. He didn't didn't deal with that. Living in this litigious society in which we live, this is a challenge for us, but what he is saying that even when we are sued as a Christian, we are to respond in love. I mean, you understand why some people see this as impractical. Even when we are sued, we are to respond in love. Verse number 41, and whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. I mentioned last week that the Romans had authority over the Jews and they could require a Jewish person to require the pack of the Roman soldier for one mile. So the Jew would mark off exactly one mile, put down a stake. He would carry the pack for one mile, throw it down. He was finished. And Jesus said, carry it too. He teaches us about love from negative circumstances. When things are not going in our favor, we are to love. But then he teaches us about love from the positive, verse number 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We probably need to define love because we love everything. We have one word, we love everything. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my grandchildren, I love the Jacksons, I love you. We love it, but I also love pizza. And I love my car. I mean, there are a lot of things that we we love everything. But see, the, the, the Greeks had four words for love. Barclay wrote, Greek is a language which is rich in synonyms, its words often have shades of meaning, which English does not possess, in Greek, there are four different words for love. There's storge, and that speaks of a family's love, the love that we have for family. That is storge. And then there's philia. Barclay says in these, in, in, uh, no, in uh, eros, which, from which we get the word erotic, he says in these words there's nothing essentially bad, They simply describe the passion of human love. But as time went on, they began to be tinged with the idea of lust rather than love. And they never occur in the New Testament at all. All right. So there is eros. There is storge, which speaks of a family love. And then there is philia. And Barclay says, this describes a man's closest and nearest and truest friend. So the love then that you have for a friend is philia. And then there is agape. This is an unconditional love. Barclay said, if we regard a person with agape, it means that no matter what that person does to us, no matter how he treats us, No matter if he insults or injures us or grieves us, we will never allow any bitterness against him to invade our hearts. That is agape love. It is an unconditional love. Agape is a love that is determined by the lover, not the one who is loved. It is different from philia. See, we love our friends because we have something in common. We have an appreciation for For them, we share things in common with them and so forth. So that is filial love, a love of friends. We do not love our enemy like we love our friend. If I love an enemy, it is because I choose to. To love someone's enemy, someone who does them wrong, is to love them because you have chosen to. And that love is exclusively Christian By the way, parenthetical to that is when the Bible says that God loves you, it is always agape. When God says he loves you, he loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are. It's unconditional. Love is, for a Christian, is not reactive. It is proactive. That's true with God. You'll notice in verse number 45b says, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What that is telling us is that the benefits of God are not given to us because we are deserving. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends his sunshine to the righteous and the unrighteous. So his benefits are not determined by our worthiness, and his love is not determined by our worthiness either. The scripture says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet... See, there are some of you who have the idea that I have to clean up, that I have to be worthy, and then God will love me. Nope, God loves you first. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's the way that God loves, and as Christians, we are to love like God. That means that we give kindness for bitterness. In verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as a believer, I am to love like God loves, and that means then that I give kindness for bitterness. I am benevolent to those who are spiteful to me. Jesus said in Luke 6, 27, do good to them that hate you, I pray for those who persecute me. Jesus prayed for those who nailed him to the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen prayed for those who stoned him to death. We are to pray for those who persecute us. So Jesus issues a correction here, and he says, no, we are to love all people, all people. Now he gives us the standard for the Christian in verse number 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, the Christian standard, you need to understand this, the Christian standard is higher than any other. See, we have the tendency today to respond to the world, to be like the world. We want to be like the world. But Jesus has called us to a higher standard because the Christian is unique. We're not like the non-Christian. not supposed to be like the non-Christian. When we are required to go one mile, we go two. When someone takes our coat, we give our shirt. We give when we're abused. We are not supposed to be like the world, ladies and gentlemen. We're supposed to be like God. The church is not supposed to be like the world. The church is supposed to be like God. God is holy. The Bible says in Leviticus 19:2, "You shall be holy. For I, the Lord, your, your God am holy. To be holy means to be set apart. To be holy means that I am set apart from the world to God. So the Bible says then that I am to be like God, not like the world. God is holy. God is loving. 1 John 4 16. God is love. Therefore, you and I are to be like God. Thus, we are to be loving. Just as birds fly, fish swim, Christians love. It is natural. For a Christian to love. We love people. God is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful, which means that he is dependable. Ladies and gentlemen, if we are like God, if we are like Christ, then we are faithful. God is patient. Peter said the Lord is long-suffering to us. Vines wrote, long-suffering is that quality of self-restraint. In the face of provocation, which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish, it is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy. Now, I know a lot of people have the idea that being a Christian means I walk down the aisle, fill out a card, and shake the preacher's hand, and that's got it. Or that I joined a Baptist church or a Methodist church or a Nazarene church or an Episcopal church or something, and that's it. no. Our lives are changed if we're Christians. If we are born again, if we're Christians, our lives are changed. Because we are different, then our attitude is different also. Our attitude towards the law is different. The natural man observes the law, but does not go beyond it. The spiritual man is committed to the spirit of the law. Not just the letter. When I came here 30 plus years ago, I had to get an accountant because you know it's time to fill out your taxes and to do all that stuff. And so I talked with the accountant and I said, Okay, here's here's what I want you to do. I want to be legal. I do not want to pay the government a dime, I don't have to. I want to be legal. But secondly, I want to be ethical. Not just legal, but ethical. And if there's any question, make sure that I'm ethical. The Christian has a different attitude about the law. He has a different attitude about morality. The natural man focuses on what he is not to do. The Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's the desire of his heart. He has a different attitude towards self. The natural person compares himself to others and says, I'm not so bad. The Christian compares himself to Christ and sees himself then as poor in spirit. Our attitude towards God is different. The natural person sees a God who is austere and is fearful of that God. The Christian sees God as our Heavenly Father who loves us, protects us, and provides for us. Then our maturity is also unique in verse number 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect that is used there is a functional word. It does not mean sinless. It means mature. For instance, when a student has mastered the subject they are studying, they are said to be perfect. They are mature. When a fruit is ripe, it is perfect. It is mature. I I was at Publix Friday with Linda. We were looking at a cantaloupe. And I asked the produce man, I said, is this cantaloupe good? He said, just came in, said it's going to be a few days before it's ripe, before it's perfect. That's what the word that is. It's a functional word that is used there. So what does that mean to be mature? What does it mean when he says that you are to be perfect? Well, it it means that you embrace God's purpose for your life. What is his purpose for your life? That you become conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, call according to his purpose. Verse number 29 says that we might become conformed to the image of his son. So everything that happens in your life, God wants to use to conform you to the image of Jesus. That is the purpose of your life. And the process of getting there is when we are converted, we are justified. I am saved from the penalty of sin. I am in the process of sanctification. I am being saved from the power of sin and then glorification. One day I will be saved from the presence of sin. So let me ask you, how would you describe yourself? I'll not ask you to do it out loud. I just want you to think about it. How would you describe yourself? How would others describe you? Are you like the world? No difference between you and the way the world lives? Or are you like Jesus? And if you're like Jesus, you're loving And you're holy because he is loving and he is holy. Our Father in God, we come to the time when we extend an invitation in your name and ask, Lord, that you speak to the hearts of people. Lord, I pray that you might reveal to us what you see when you look at us. And Father, for those who do not know Christ, I pray that they might trust Him today to be saved. I pray for others who need to make commitments that they would do so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir will sing a hymn of invitation. I'll encourage you to make a commitment to Christ. If you've never been saved, that you would trust Him. If you need to join the church, our doors are open. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please. As we stand, they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.